Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Langani, here with Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson. Gentlemen, I'm looking forward to recording this one together, having the whole gang with us. Adrian, how are you doing? Doing good. Enjoying my summer. Happy to be here as always. Looking forward to this episode. And like you, I'm glad we're all here and ready to go. How about you, Eric? It's good to see you. Yeah, glad to be with you again. It's been a it's been a hectic last few months and a few hectic months ahead. So when we are able to all be together, have the band here, that's a good thing. Yes, it is. And we've got a great topic today as well. I'm going to start us off. We're, we're going to be talking about retirement, really in retirement planning, different areas you need to look into. All three of us have brought aspects of that are very important to consider when planning for your retirement. I'm going to start us off with what I'll almost say, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is potentially a retirement crisis. And here's what I mean by that. Schwab recently did a study and the average person uh, the, the respondents, the average person said they thought they needed 1.8 million to retire, and 86% of people said they were somewhat or very likely to achieve that goal. The concern is the average 401k balance is 27,000. If you fast forward a little bit and break it down by age, now this is with a different data point, the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances, the average balance for ages 55 to 64 is 47, sort of taking out that skew. So the question then is, are people going to be able to retire? Wait, let me restate that. You're saying the average balance is $47,000. If you're between ages 55 to 64. And there, the thought is that you're going to transform that forty-seven thousand into one point eight million. Exactly. That there's the flaw in the logic, Eric. That I think we need to discuss, and I think there are a couple issues here. But, gentlemen, so. To break down the points again, the average person responding to the Schwab survey says you need one point eight million dollars to retire. But the average 401k balance is 27,000. And then if you cut it by age, when you get a little older, between 55 to 64, the average is 47,000. So the question is, where's the rest of the money coming from? So is that, let's say, the average 401k balance, maybe do they have two or three in the study, two or three different stranded 401ks, each of which averages about 47? Or does that maybe, you know, his and hers? So if it's a married couple, maybe they have twice that. Are there other assets outside the 401k or does it really not address that particular question? Because I'm wondering if that's the totality at a household level of all of the reserves that they have for retirement, then, you know, it, it That may be understating it a little bit. Well, let me actually read this because I gave you a somewhat inaccurate. It's not 401k balance, and I'm going to read it word for word. The Federal Reserve's most recent triennial survey of consumer finances says the median American household has 26,000 in total financial assets, including savings accounts, a life insurance, 401k plan, and the like. Amongst those ages 45 to 54, the figure is 37,000 and 55 to 64 is 47,000. So going back to your question, I don't have the exact answer to that. Let's assume for argument's sake that it is one per person, not per couple, not per, oh no, that's not right. This says average American household. So that 47,000 is per household. 
So we'll just round it to 50 grand just to make it easy from this point forward. So if the average American household between ages 55 and 64 has $50,000 of financial assets. But they believe they need 1.8 million to retire. And they're 86% of them are somewhat or very confident they're going to get there. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just thought all three points <laughs> needed to be well, said. So the old, the old research design person in me is wondering if the 50 grand per household represents every single wealth decile in the U.S., but the Schwab respondents were concentrated perhaps in, you know, let's say the top one or two deciles. It could be that the respondents themselves had a starting point that led them to believe that, you know, that wasn't enough. Because I could imagine some people saying, hey, I have half a million dollars, which, by the way, I'm not in any way disparaging. I have half a million dollars and I'm totally set. Well, so I, I, I don't have the answer to how the... Serve the people surveyed skews. But mm-hmm. the point that you bring up that I think we can address is I believe both data points aren't very good, not the survey okay. collection, but themselves. Mm-hmm. 1.8 million, I think, is probably higher than most people need. Not mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. I have clients that need more than that for sure, and I have clients that need less than that. But I'd say the average American probably needs less than 1.8. What that doesn't change, though, is I think the average American needs way more than 50,000. Mm-hmm. So to me, the problem, if we throw out the actual numbers themselves for a second, to me, the problem is people don't have enough and people believe they're going to have enough. I think both need to be addressed. So the people, when I, what I mean by that is the people that think they're going to have enough probably need to do something different. And we talk about this all the time. We're planners. I would advocate running a financial plan to figure out what you need. It'd be amazing for those who have not done this to see how your thinking changes just when you see what applies to you versus a general number. That's good. One. And I'll add one other point to where you create this plan and see that maybe you have this big shortage and maybe forgot what you need to adjust or what do you need to do going forward just to close that gap too. And also, if you're in this case where you see a big shortage as well, you need to really just prioritize your goals, see which ones are not that far away that you can achieve, which ones might take a little bit more work or more planning or need to make those adjustments as well. So I think that's something too that comes up when you give this number where people are far from reaching this 1.8 million. But then when it comes to that, you really just need to see what your situation is and what you can do to make changes. I really like this topic and it lines up pretty well with what I'm going to be discussing later. So I like a conversation so far. Yeah. Well, and so I'm going to add to what you said or explain it further, knowing your number. So rather than 1.8 as a general number, knowing your number, where you are currently and how to close the gap will be very valuable to anybody listening. So to me, when I read this article, the surveys, that's where I read that. And I said, well, there is a solution, which is running the financial plan and then figuring out how to fill the gap. Now, the article does address how the number is, is likely lower for most people when you consider things like social security, lifestyle, etc. And another important thing that it mentions that I think is worth for everyone listening to know is that the average retiree right now or the median annual income for seniors are between 45 and 50,000. 
So if you use the old rule, which we have debunked in our previous episode, but it leads to an easy calculation now, if you have a 4% withdrawal rate on 1.8 million, that's 72,000. And if you use 50,000 as the number with the 4% withdrawal rate, that's 1.25 million that you need. Uh, if you then minus off, let's say Social Security is 30 of that 50,000, so you only need to supplement Social Security by 20,000 using the 4% withdrawal rule, you get to 500,000. For everyone listening, I knew, know I threw out a bunch of numbers. Here's what they mean. The 1.8 million would get you 72,000. If you then say, well, I don't need 72, I need 50, just 50 being the, and there is a right number for you, that's where the plan comes in, but 50 being what the average senior is living on in today's dollars, well, what you then need is 1.25, not 1.8. Then you minus off what you'll get off Social Security. Now, instead of needing 1.8, you need about 500,000. So for anyone listening, these numbers probably don't apply to you. These are averages, right? So what is it, the Yogi Berra quote that I love when we talk about averages? If averages were true, you could have one foot in a bucket of fire and one foot in a bucket of ice and be fine, right? So find out your number. That's my takeaway from this article. You're, you're likely behind, right, for those of you listening. Hopefully you're not, and I'm saying this in general, the average American is likely behind. Figure out what you've got to do to get on track, and then you can probably accomplish it versus having these general numbers in your mind and not really knowing where you stand. Yeah. First of all, I'm glad that you brought this up, Roshan, because the profile, sometimes I think we work in a fairly, as advisors, we work with a fairly limited segment of the overall U.S. population. And so sometimes that perspective, our perspective is distorted. And what we come to sort of see as normal when you step back and you realize at a broad national level, that's not that's not true. It's helpful to recalibrate, I think, our perspective. By the way, that study, the federal study that you mentioned, that triannual study, I had a college intern for this a summer a few years back, and, and the assignment that I had for that intern was to go into that and then identify what was the at the age tier that we tend to find people are really recognizing the value of good planning. What is their at the 85 percentile, what is their household, median household income? And at the 85 percentile, what's their median household net worth? And because that's, you know, that's, it seems the, from the 85th percentile and up is really where most of our work is concentrated. So now that you've mentioned that the study has been re-released, I'm eager to have a college intern go back in and refresh some of that analysis. I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe in a future episode, if you can give us what those percentiles were, I'd just be curious because I wouldn't be surprised if we work at a higher than 85th percentile in our work in our industry. Yes, I think in uh, probably if we looked at our practice, it would be significantly higher than that. But I think below that, we had the sense of it's probably hard to envision that people below the 85th percentile on these numbers are likely to say what we do is is sufficient to move the needle. The other things that would be useful are, if you if it's possible, work longer, reduce your expenses and other things of that kind just for more years so that the math will work out. By the way, one other thing you didn't mention, which is pension. So I had a conversation with some friends of mine and longtime friends. They've been in pastoral ministry and also have for the entire career and they have a profoundly disabled daughter and so that has meant that one of them has stayed home with that daughter for years and years 
But the interesting thing is, while not having through the course of that career the opportunity to save all that much, what they did have was they were part of a framework that had a pension. And so between the, a small pension, but a, a pension nonetheless. So actually the math worked out in their case delightfully with a quarter of a million dollars saved. And so, hey, they're going to have more than enough, it, it appears, to carry them all the way out. I, I think what people need to understand is if you have a pension that will pay you $25,000 a year, let's say, and you use Roshan, your number of essentially a 4% rule, that's in that's about the equivalent of $625,000 that you've banked that's going to perpetually be able to yield you that that amount of income. Maybe it's a little less because the, the pension in this case is not inflation adjusting, but when somebody has a $100,000 or $150,000 pension and you start looking at those numbers, now you're saying, goodness, that's like that's like having the equivalent of somebody having throughout their lifetime having to save between three and four million dollars to provide the equivalent distribution. And as you were mentioning that, I looked up a couple clients accounts because to me, what stands out as well are in expenses are the biggest driver of this, how much you spend. And I thought of in my mind, I thought of a, a few clients now of that they live a lower lifestyle. They're not intentionally keeping their expenses low. They're just happy in their life with a lower expense level than typical. And they're able to retire with, and I looked at both of their accounts, one of them's around 300000 and does not have to take anything out and really isn't. And the other one was at like 400000 and both of them are retired and actually have excess. So just going back to this survey and, you know, I've run both of their plans. They both have more than they need, right? So going back to this survey of how the starting point of 1.8 million is probably not accurate and figuring out your number is being valuable. Now, we're all talking about retirement topics today, but we've brought a slightly different perspective on each of these. Adrian, let's jump into your topic. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I have just five points that I want to draw out for our listeners and viewers today when it comes to retirement planning, investing, just your journey in general. And it's five catchphrases I have for a quote we've been using a lot, take control and achieve your goals. And this is something that I came with, came up with on the spot. I'm sure if you probably Google search it, you'll see it somewhere else, but let's just move forward with it. I'm looking forward to it. So the first point I have on my list is what can I learn from this? And this is extremely important when it comes to retirement planning, because you're going to have mistakes, you're going to have things that go your way, positive, negative things happening. But one thing you really have to draw is any insights or any experiences that you have, see how you can apply this when it comes to future decision makings or different opportunities that come up. So just thinking about and asking yourself, what can I learn from any mistakes or successes that have happened? So that can guide me in the right direction when it comes to planning or investing and just anything in life in general that comes your way, just drawing from your experiences. Because like we just talked about with that number, that $1.8 million number, just closing that gap is going to be different for everybody. And everybody has their own experiences, their own like moments in life. So being able to draw from that is the key for you to be successful and really fine tune your plan that best that's fits your needs. So that's the first point I want to draw on, but just learning from your experiences, whatever it may be in investing retirement planning, I think is all something that we really can agree upon. Then the next thing I have on here is I need some time. And this is another important feature of retirement planning because 
patience sometimes can be important where I think nowadays there's a common trend where people really do expect immediate results. And when they come out with, when they first draw up their financial plan or the retirement plan in that example Roshan gave, you might see that you might not have enough. And that could cause you to make some poor decisions or take unnecessary risks that you might not need. So just having a certain patience and just saying, I need some time for things to work out because like markets, everything, some things can change on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, whatever it may be. So just saying, I need some time for things to maybe work out or getting a better understanding of your situation might be beneficial when it comes to retirement planning process. I think that applies to everything, everything in life almost needing. I don't know whether it's I don't I don't know whether we've always been this way as humans in general or it's a it's a, it's a social media, Internet and so on. I feel like everything everyone wants results immediately and in almost anything having good results at will take time. Exactly. And it's interesting that you brought the social media part as well, because there's actually something I figured found online. There's a trend with young adults in China, young professionals, people maybe that have just graduated or at university right now, they're doing these social media posts, taking pictures of themselves like lying flat on the ground. And the term they're using is called Tang Ping, which means laying flat. And it's, uh, it's a form of protest or going against the social norm of just working to a point of exhaustion, these long hours that they're sometimes demanding of people at their stages of life. So this type of like protests, this social media posts that they're doing is just saying, you know, I need some time to really reflect, evaluate where I want to be and what I want to do in my life right now. Just having that patience is key and sometimes can be beneficial where sometimes people say, hey, maybe I'm, I feel like I'm doing nothing, but patience and just taking some time can be your greatest benefit in some of these cases. Excellent. I had not even heard of this Tang Ping movement at all. Yeah, they're really going against the, they call it like the 996, like work schedule that they have where you're working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week right now. And some people that are graduating from university right now after taking some very difficult courses and working along with that or right now just taking some time to themselves and just really seeing is this a route I want to go or looking for some alternatives. So it can tie into a lot of different aspects of your life, especially like I mentioned, when it comes to retirement planning as well, because just taking some time where it comes to retirement planning or investing can help you out in the long run and not make you jump to any bad decisions or really make you think about it. So the next point I have on here is I still have things to be grateful for. And just, I'm just going to keep using your example, Roshan, because I feel like I can tie all these points into it as well, where if you do draw the plan or if you have goals, whatever it may be, just see the things that you have grateful for and just remain positive with it. Because maybe that goal of $1.8 million, you might not be able to achieve, but you might achieve half a million dollars a couple of years from now or a million dollars. Just being grateful for maybe where you are at right now can help you stay positive and stay motivated, which is extremely important when it comes to uh, retirement planning because that's what helps keep you on track, sticking with the plan so you can make any adjustments or adapt need be, but ultimately you're staying within some guidelines that will keep you on in the right direction. So finding things to be grateful can help you stay motivated, stay positive, 
and keep you on that journey and on track for your goals and just really appreciating what you've accomplished can help you out in the long run. That's a great one. I think we talk about gratitude so much in our happiness episodes. I think I discussed it last week with, with Jill. It also, similar to what you said previously, I think what you're saying are almost things you can use for life in general, not just retirement, but similar to what you said of things taking time, taking time out of your schedule for gratitude, I think always is helpful for everybody. Yeah. You know, the everybody's retirement journey is different. Everybody's plan is different. So just finding the things that are going your way or working for you, or maybe you didn't have a couple of years back, whatever it may be, just finding ways to just be grateful, saying, hey, at least I'm at this stage or, or I'm doing this, I'm headed in the right direction. That's just beneficial. And that's a good mindset to have just so you can just continue to keep pushing forward and just being as motivated as possible to just try and achieve any of the goals that you have out there. The next one I have on my list is I'm letting this go. And this can be a difficult one to really come to terms with, but this is sometimes where maybe if you have a goal and you're maybe fixated on it, it can be hard for you to maybe step back and reassess or adapt and make any changes. But again, this could be applied to just a number of things. Maybe you have an investment strategy that you're using or a certain plan that you've had into place that might not be working, but it has helped you out in the past before. Being able to you know, evaluate it and say, maybe I need to look for something else or take a step back and just really transition from it can be very beneficial because it can remove any biases that you had and can prevent you from clouding any of your future choices or decisions you have to make. Being able to step back and let go of maybe certain things that are working for you or maybe some things that aren't working for you just to see what other options are out there so you can remain as flexible as possible because typically when we do retirement planning, we always have to reevaluate the plan because like I mentioned before, People change, events happen, unexpected costs arise. So being able to have that flexibility built in is key. And sometimes the only way you'd be able to do that is moving on from certain things and reevaluating it. So just trying to incorporate that when you're looking at your plan can be vital with your journey. And then the last one I have on here is it is what it is. And I think this is probably in the beginning part of retirement planning where maybe you've never created before, you had a plan and you haven't reevaluated it. So once you have all the data input, everything's up to date and you see your position, you see what state you're at and coming and accepting that and understanding your realities is extremely important when it comes to making rational decisions, looking at different opportunities and seeing what the best fit for you or what the best direction to go in. It's just really come to terms on what stage you're at or where you're at right now is important because it helps you when it comes to prioritizing goals, setting goals, whatever it may be. So just saying it is what it is, running the data and seeing where you're at right now can help you make better decisions, prioritize your goals, or even set and create goals. Just coming to terms with what your reality is. Because like that example Roshan gave and that stat gave, everybody's situation is going to be different, especially when it comes to planning or closing that gap to get to that 1.8 million. So understanding where you're at is important when it comes to deciding what you're going to do next and what those next steps may be. I think your last two points almost go hand in hand, right? It is what it is and being able to let things go. 
Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. I never thought about that, but those two do have some overlapping features. That's great. Eric, what did you have today regarding retirement to share? Yeah, the, my broad topic today is helping people think through the the easily overlooked categories of spending as they try to chart out what it is that they will actually need on an annual basis during their retirement to make the ends meet. Let me ask you this. When you have, because you do, you are planners, I'm a planner. When you have clients coming in and they've sort of detailed for you what their, what their budget is and how much they're spending, as they've attempted to catalog and then sum up the different things, groceries, dining out, utilities, and so forth, do you find that they're recurrently, not every single person, but recurrently, they're, they've missed a few big but lumpy expenses that they just forgot kind of are ones they have to take into account? Almost always, yeah. Okay. What are some of those, the big lumpy expenses? Well, it really, it can be stuff that they think about, but it's just not, not that time of year or something as simple as they pay their insurance annually or vacations are annual and they're not monthly. So they, they will sometimes miss those. But even when you retire, thinking about what healthcare costs are going to be, even if it's Medicare and then the supplemental plans, it's. I think I find that a lot of people don't think about that until they're there versus in advance. Because health insurance in particular comes right out of your paychecks. It's not something you think about. Yeah, a lot of times you overlook all of those things that if you're on a W-2 and you're having those as subtractions, pre-tax subtractions, a lot of times they're overlooked. Here's the ones that I find over and over again. Clients, have they say, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So one of them is if they're not currently making, let's say they purchase vehicles on payments. If they're not currently making a payment, then they're sort of, they forget about the fact that, oh, there will probably be another car replacement in my future. What's that going to cost me? <laughs> another one is the, the question of home improvement. So if the median value of a home in the United States right now, not new construction, but existing homes is, I think, a little bit north of 400000 I think it's $410,000. What should they then assume is the likely average annual expenditure that they will have on home improvement costs? And then sometimes they hit think, well, I haven't been doing any home improvement costs. Yeah, but you periodically have to replace a roof, right? Or the driveway, or you have some plumbing issues or electrical issues, or you have to reside or repaint or even just basic maintenance. Well, in 2022, the average home expense was somewhere in the neighborhood of $7,000 in terms of home improvement related expenses. So if that's the case, and it varies from year to year, I would say over the last, from 2014 to 2018, for example, the average was about five $6,000. So let's just say it's $6,000 and that by in that window of 2014 to 2018, home prices pre-COVID were not quite as high at the median level. Let's just say that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about one and a quarter, one and a half percent. I usually tell clients, let's assume that if you're more home maintainers, but not really that keen on doing home improvements, you're probably closer to the one percent end of that number. If you're much more keen to redo the bathrooms and the kitchen and put in a new deck and such on a frequent basis, you're probably closer to two percent. But whatever then the value of your home is, since those are super lumpy expenses, it's useful to at least make some allowance for that to be part 
part of your plan. And we could cite other things of that nature. Travel, especially if you gifts that you're giving out, depending on the magnitude of those gifts, not just your Christmas and birthday type of gifts, but also the ones where you're trying to help one of your you know relatives or family members or friends out and that sort of thing. But the one that I think many people really misrepresent in their minds is what the long-term cost of their health care will be. So this, we try to use some broad national averages if someone has really no idea. That's at least a starting point for us. But let me just sum up, and maybe you guys just sum up for me what are, if let's say you're 65 and older, you're Medicare eligible, what to, and you're no longer working, you're no longer covered by an employment plan. Let's just detail what are the constituent parts of most people's health care expenses at 65. By the way, this will probably differ at 85 and such, but just let's help people appreciate the bill block approach to this. So number one, what's the first, the first expense at 65 as part of Medicare that you will have? Part B. So you're going to have that subtracted. You'll either have that subtracted from your social security check, or you'll have that if you have elected to postpone social security, which we often, but not always counsel, then you will be seeing that as a debit that you have to pay. And at the most, the lowest level, that is currently $164.90 a month, I think. So if there's two of you, you're right there looking at effectively $330 a month at the household level or somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, in, in this particular case, close to $4,000 per year just for the Medicare Part B premium if you're in the lowest tier. If in two calendar years prior, you had a pretty good income, you may have been bumped into one of the surcharges levels. Those surcharges can get up to as much as, a, let's say, another $500 per person per month. So just be aware, be aware that part B, then what's the next part that people will have to pay? Assuming they're original Medicare, let's use that stipulation. They'll need the supplemental plan, the Medigap. They'll, they'll have a supplemental plan. And there are plans, plan designs that are set up by the Medicare administration that run from the denominated as letter A all the way out to letter N and, you know, much of that span in between. We're often talking with our clients about one or another of these plans. Typically, if they like to have the, you know, everything covered, that might be a G plan. Well, if it's the G plan, plan, depending again on your age, your health, et cetera, you might be spending per person on another $150 a month, $100, $200, somewhere in there. But let's just use $150 as probably a reasonable center point. So again, if there's two of you, that's another $300 a month or another $3,600 a year. Right now, we're at the, so, so far in this conversation, we're at $7,200 or thereabouts for the year. What, what's, the next, what's the next category? Okay, I'll help you out here. Part D, because you're probably going to have a drug plan. And so that tends to be that offered by private insurers. It can be a little, it, that's certainly, if you aren't using a lot of medicines, then that might be 10 bucks, 20 bucks. But if you, on the other hand, if you do tend to have a pretty heavy reliance on a number of medications, that might be 70, 80, $100 a month. So let's just use, I'm going to be just gentle in this particular case, and I'll say it's 20 bucks a month. 
So for another, for each person, that's 240 And for two people, that's another close to $500 a month. So we're, clo- we're closing in on 8000 And I haven't touched on co-pays. I haven't touched on the, you know, just out-of-pocket expenses that you may have. So the national average, is, as it happens, is somewhere in the neighborhood of about close to $6,000 per person or close to $500 per person per month when all of those things are added together. And if you use Medicare Advantage plans instead, that can be a little bit less. But just thinking about that, so then really a married couple should be thinking somewhere in the neighborhood, again, in one of these overlooked expenses, possibly starting with an assumption that they'll need about $12,000 a year at the household level to make that, the math of all of that work. And let's face it, if you're saying, well, how much do I need to have in reserve to cover that? Or am I expecting to, to cover that entirely out of new cash flows from Social Security? What, however you think about it, maybe if you said, well, let's just make sure that I have enough set aside to cover those expenses. Fidelity has an annual study that they update. The Employee Benefit Research Institute has a number that they update on a fairly frequent basis. Vanguard and Mercer have collaborated on a tool that will help you do some estimates on some of that as well. In fact, the numbers that they say fall somewhere between, I think uh, in earlier this year, the Employee Benefit Research Institute assumed that a couple would need somewhere in the neighborhood of about $350,000 set aside just to cover those expenses over the remaining arc of their lifetimes, assuming they lived to median life expectancy for their cohort. If you live longer than that, of course, then you probably would want to have still more set aside. No shocker, women tend to live longer than men. Duh. So on that basis, if we're having this conversation and you're a listener and you're not in, you know, not as a couple, if if you're a woman, you might want to say, hey, I need maybe somewhere close to a couple hundred thousand dollars set aside for that. If you're a guy, maybe 150, something along that lines. But here's how you can refine this even further. If you go to, if you just will search, you know, do a web search for the Google Mercer study, it'll take you to both the first release that they did on this in 2018, a paper that deals with the costs of all of this, but they've also at Vanguard created a tool. And so you can locate that through a web search where you can put in some of your specifics because there are certain chronic diseases which people will have that will drive the expected cost of care up substantially. And how much better for you would it be, obviously, if you could have a much more customized and tailored expectation expectation for yourself than just using these broad national averages. And so there's, I could say more about some of these other expenses. One of them is long-term care. I'm not going to do a deep dive on long-term care. So, but between car replacements, home improvements, medical expenses, potentially long-term care, at that level alone, and maybe some of you are even overlooking the fact that you might take a vacation from time to time, <laughs> you know, you start doing, you could start compiling all of those, those considerations. You might say, yeah, what is just exactly what would we need to put together as a base of resources here to make all of that possible? And, and on that note, if you're thinking, I don't know how to approach that, good news. You've got three people here <laughs> that do this for a living. This is how we help people. So if, you're, if you've got an advisor and your advisor is very planning-centric, fantastic, go talk to your advisor. If you don't, uh, give us a shout. We'll have that initial exploratory conversation with you, and then we'll see, hey, does it make sense for us potentially to work together? 
Yeah, I'll tell you this episode with what you mentioned, Adrian, and what I mentioned, it really did show me how overwhelming the planning process can be, but also how necessary it is. Right. So I think that was a lot of great information. Gentlemen, do you have anything to add in closing? No, I'm just shocked that we did that in 38 minutes. Yes, we got to. We <laughs> did whatever get it, it was. Quickly. <laughs> for everyone listening, thanks for joining us. It's been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Please like, subscribe, give us five stars, tell your friends and family, and take control and achieve your goals. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.